coming up, Labour goes back to the future. We have four weeks to show what kind of country we are. As the Theresa May bandwagon rolls on. Hello, Paul Osborne here, calling in this week from Brisbane, where, believe it or not, Jeremy Corbyn actually made the news this week. Yes, even on the other side of the world, the Labour leader is kind of fascinating to political reporters. What propelled him to Australian TV news was the party's campaign launch. Glitz, glamour and excitement. All of them were missing as Mr Corbyn fired up an admittedly rather partisan crowd. The nurse, the teacher, the small trader, the carer, the builder, the office worker, they all win. Labour is offering a real choice, a real alternative to the rig system holding us back. We have four weeks to ruin their party. We have four weeks to have a chance to take our wealth back. We have four weeks to show what kind of country we are. At times, the whole Corbyn leadership does feel a bit like a throwback to the 60s and 70s, to the fabled days of beer and sandwiches at number 10. But surely Labour wouldn't seek election in 2017 with a manifesto that, you know, wouldn't have been out of place in the 70s, nationalising huge industries, boosting public spending across the board. It turns out that is exactly what the plan is, though the plan was probably not for the manifesto to leak so that newspapers like The Mail and The Telegraph could crow about Corbyn's not entirely secret plan to supposedly drag us back to a Soviet-era 70s life. Though, having said that, neither has Labour exactly denied that this is the party's platform. Now, say what you like about Jeremy Corbyn, he is at least a man of principle. If his party is going to lose this election, he will go down fighting with a programme which many of his supporters will be delighted with. Well, let's stick an oddly shaped 50 cent coin in the metre and dial up Robert Meakin, who is back in good old England. Um, Robert, the irony is that polls show that people want the railways nationalised, they want the Royal Mail back in public hands, more money for childcare, more money for social care for the elderly, more money for the NHS. They want the things that Labour is promising in this election. They chime with the stated desires of millions of voters, and yet, packaged up as a Labour manifesto, it is absolutely going to scare away those same voters, chiefly because they don't think it can be paid for. Well, yeah, that's the age-old problem, um, well, certainly for this particular Labour Party at the moment. As you say, the the actual policies regarding the railways, for example, are rather popular. I mean, people are sick to death with the standard of rail travel. On the flip side, the problem is, do you really trust Jeremy Corbyn and his Labour colleagues, as you say, to have done their sums properly to actually make this work, to actually make this cost effective. Labour's problem a lot of the time isn't its policies, it's the credibility of the people presenting them. And that's something they're going to have to try and overcome over the next few weeks. Right now, that would seem an uphill struggle. It is blindingly obvious after this week that the biggest barrier to all of this is that it comes in a big wrapper marked Labour. Two years ago, Labour proposed an energy price fix. The Tories said it was tantamount to turning the whole country into some kind of communist dictatorship. Now, the Tories are proposing an energy price fix, 
and its strong and stable government. Yes, it's very much stealing uh, the emperor's clothes, isn't it? The, the Conservatives are trying to dress it up as a as a rather different policy, but essentially it isn't. Uh, we remember. Um, how Ed Miliband was ridiculed for this idea not very long ago at all. It, it, was, it was described as Marxism, I believe, by David Cameron at the time. Ed Miliband himself is, is quite rightly saying, uh, I, I was mocked for this only a couple of years ago, and now you're, you're blatantly stealing this policy. In reality, though, it looks like the Conservatives are also getting away with it. Um, People seem to sort of reluctantly acknowledge that, yes, it is, in fact, a Labour policy, but I don't think voters are particularly holding it against the Conservatives at present. I think the Tories, in the position of strength that they are, are quite happy to sort of cherry-pick bits from previous uh, Labour manifestos, whether it be Ed Miliband's, whether it be Tony Blair's. The fact is, though, the bill for all of this would be, you know, substantial, and it's not remotely clear how it's going to be paid for. They are insisting that when the manifesto is published in full in a few days' time that it will all have been fully costed. But just scrapping tuition fees would cost about 10 billion quid. That's before you start talking about all the other things they want to do. I wonder if maybe this manifesto is an implicit admission on the side of the Labour Party that they're not going to win the election. They know that. So why not put out a wish list of impossibly expensive promises, a a utopian vision of what life under Labour could be like if only the money was limitless, safely delivered to supporters who will be delighted with the plans and party leaders who know that they'll never really have to implement it. Well, yeah, look, Jeremy Corbyn is doing everything that's on the tin, essentially, of the Corbyn brand. it, It would be pretty remarkable and also hypocritical if he didn't go out all guns blazing with these things, if he didn't talk about renationalising the railways, the post office, that's what he very much believes in as a politician. I don't, he's, he's not sort of hedging his bets. You wouldn't expect him to. As you say, on the, the cynical flip side of this, you could say, well, yeah, why not? Why not go for it when, in fact, you know damn well you're not going to be moving into Downing Street on the 9th of June. Just go for your absolute pure principles don't be hindered or compromised in any way you don't need to be you you can hold your head up high after this and say look i stood for what i believed in i went to the british public presented what i believed in in the most true direct form if they rejected that i have no regrets so last week's local elections raised any number of questions but perhaps one of the biggest was what on earth is now the point of UKIP? Clearly the voters have made up their minds there isn't a point anymore. This is maybe the story of UKIP all along, though. It never really achieved anything directly. It didn't get MPs elected to Parliament, well, except for Tory defectors who didn't tend to last very long. It never won any kind of meaningful power. Last week, all of its councillors were defeated in local elections and just one was gained from other parties. But that doesn't mean that UKIP hasn't had a massive impact. We wouldn't have had that referendum if it hadn't been for UKIP for a start. But now that we've voted to leave the EU, once again, it seems the biggest impact it will have is on other parties, and this time chiefly Labour. Now, polls suggest that three quarters of defecting UKIP voters are shifting to the Conservatives. And that includes a lot of people who used to be Labour supporters. 
Now, that matters because UKIP came second in 120 constituencies three years ago, including 44 that were held by the Labour Party. Now, Robert, I've gone through not all of the numbers, but some of them. And if 50% of the UKIP voters from two years ago were to defect to the Conservatives, then they could win about 30 out of those 44 seats were their second to Labour, even if Labour didn't lose a single vote. I remember from the, the 2015 election when we were looking at those results that night, on the number of times where the Tories were edging closer to Labour in some of those seats, but you saw sort of UKIP having a decent share of the vote as well. And you thought at the time, my goodness, UKIP has really cost the Tories a, a few seats tonight. They've really been a thorn in the Conservative side for some time. Now that the, the tide is turning, it looks very ominous for Labour in those sort of seats you mentioned, that, you know, that the fact that the right wing vote is essentially unifying behind one party rather than being splintered between the Tories and UKIP. It looks very worrying for those Labour MPs. That is the, exactly the sort of area where the Tories are looking to pick up seats on the night. Even UKIP, uh, leading UKIP politicians themselves are admitting that they're going to the doorstep and people are saying to them, look, we were UKIP supporters. We may even be, still consider ourselves to be UKIP supporters, but you've done your job. And we believe Theresa May when she says that she's the strong and stable leader who can now take us forward towards Brexit. I mean, she's played a blinder uh, so far with that and to the expense of both Labour and UKIP. And an awful lot of UKIP voters are defecting. We don't know how many, but the UKIP vote, if the polls are right, is plummeting down to sort of four, maybe five percent. This explains, by the way, why Theresa May is visiting quite so many seats with what look like impossibly big Labour majorities. She's been to places with majorities of 10, 15, 20,000 in some cases. But what they also are are seats with really big UKIP votes. Now, presumably that UKIP vote is collapsing in those constituencies and she wants to stand there to hoover up as many of those votes as she possibly can. It's also, it, it, it's good psychology, I suppose, on the part of, of Tory HQ. The fact she's going to some places you really wouldn't expect her to go to, it gives an impression of real, real confidence on the part of the uh, Theresa May presently that she really fancies her chances in places that were considered unreachable for decades uh, for the Conservatives. So, yeah, I think it, it, it's very unsettling for the Labour Party in particular at the moment that she is turning up in those sort of areas because it, 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 it looks like the, the invasion could be far more far-reaching than even you know, plenty of the more cynical Labour supporters and MPs imagined only a few weeks ago. Right, well, let's turn our focus to the Conservative Party for a moment, because for some months now, some of their opponents have been pinning a lot of hopes on the Crown Prosecution Service, as it busily investigated files relating to dozens of constituency battles at the election two years ago. Fourteen police forces sent over those files. But then this week, the CPS decided that not a single one warranted prosecutions for breaches of the rules on expenses. The Prime Minister, as you might imagine, was very happy. Those who made those complaints will have to uh, uh, consider the basis on which they made those complaints. But all I would say is, is actually, if we look at the expenses issue, we have seen all the major parties and the Scottish Nationalists being fined for mistakes having been made on national expenses. We've paid our fines, and I sincerely hope that the other parties are paying theirs. It was money spent by the National Party 
on local campaigns which should have been declared as local spending and was actually declared as national spending if it had been declared properly then those local campaigns would have overspent and that they would have got into trouble now you have to give a, a, a hat tip here to Channel 4 News, to Michael Crick in particular, because if, if he hadn't banged on about this for as long as he did, it wouldn't have got this far. We wouldn't have had these investigations. It wouldn't have been brought to light. There is no doubt that the rules were broken in a very large scale manner. Clearly, though, some people are now going to shout conspiracy that not a single person is charged. I mean, two, three days ago, before this decision was made, there were people saying that we could have dozens of Tory candidates who were meant to be defending their seats being forced to stand down on the day that nominations closed. I wonder, though, that there is a massive difference between um, an administrative cock-up deserving of a big fine and a criminal conspiracy to cheat in an election. And as Theresa May says... A lot of parties have been fined for breaking the rules on expenses. Was this a bigger deal than this CPS decision suggests? My instinct is it wasn't. I would I'd have to say I, w- I would go along with the old-fashioned uh, cock-up theory, to be honest, simply because I don't think in this day and age that uh, you know, major political parties really imagine they can get away with such things that they could pull the wool over people's eyes. Why would they? Also, the Conservative Party is a pretty wealthy organisation. I don't understand why they would why they would want to be crooked under the radar and break the rules like this, thinking they could get away with it. It doesn't it doesn't add up to me. At the same time, I have to add, I thought it, it, the way it was all being presented in the news, I thought this could be a major problem for the Conservative Party. I mean, when, yeah, with the, the small majority they had before this election was called, there were rumblings of, you know, my goodness, could we have all manner of by-elections coming up? So after all that, you, you have to say it, it does look like rather a, a damp squib, to be honest. Inevitably, the opposition parties seized on it. They obviously wanted to demonstrate it was an example of old-fashioned Tory corruption, but at the end of the day, it just simply hasn't added up. Well, last week we talked about this personality cult that is developing around Theresa May in what is a very, very presidential campaign. This week, the Prime Minister, who loves to meet real people, that's as long as they don't speak, obviously, or ask any difficult questions, decided to communicate with millions of real people all at once, by appearing on the blandest, least threatening television programme imaginable. It was, of course, The One Show, TV's equivalent of a weak, stagnant cup of Horlicks before bed, where the dear leader told us how she doesn't take the bins out because it is, as she put it, a boy job. Leaving aside the slightly odd 1970s gender issues there, I would have thought that the chief reason that she didn't put the bins out of an evening is because she's the bloody Prime Minister. But here's an interesting fact. A poll last week suggested that only 15% of people in Britain are familiar with the phrase strong and stable. Robert, this raises a question for the other 85%. Where the hell have they been for the last three weeks? Yeah, of course, it's easy for people in the media for people who just are obsessed about politics generally you know, to think, oh, how the hell could you not have heard strong and stable government being mentioned in, in recent times? Um, the reality, of course, is that plenty of people are just getting on with their lives and have far more important and better things to do. That is also why 
Theresa May is still shamelessly banging the same drum. Strong and stable, strong and stable. Coalition, coalition of chaos. These phrases all the time, all the time, and will continue to do so until June the 8th. It doesn't matter how often commentators in the Guardian newspaper or the Times or the BBC make fun of it. She's going to keep at that because you say a lot of people still haven't heard it yet. And she thinks that's a big key message. That's her image rolled into one. She wants to be seen as the strong, stable, bloody difficult woman who will not succumb to chaos. And uh, yeah, so I'm afraid we're just going to have to cope with it for the next few weeks. If you've heard it uh, several times, you're going to hear it several times more. I don't know about you, my Facebook and Twitter timelines are flooded with ludicrous partisan assertions as to why only a comic book villain with a brain injury would vote for candidate A or candidate B. Most recently, for example, I saw a claim that you couldn't possibly vote for Theresa May because when she appeared on The One Show, she was wearing diamond-studded shoes. This was apparently proof that she doesn't understand real people. How can someone who wears diamond-studded shoes possibly understand the plight of a normal person? Now, look, I suspect that if you're not of a conservative mindset, you could probably come up with a couple of hundred better reasons for not voting for Theresa May than the shoes that she wears. I also strongly suspect you can probably buy those tacky diamond-studded shoes or something very identical from Primark or TK Maxx. It is hardly in itself a defining factor of the idle rich. But just in the same way that the party leaders have made this all about personality, because bear in mind Labour, a lot of people in Labour think Jeremy Corbyn is a is a winner out on the stump, not the loser that he sometimes is, is perceived as in Westminster. They've made this personal, but so have these fired-up campaigners tapping away on their laptops and their mobile phones all the time with this nonsensical world in which only a sort of moneyed toff would consider voting Conservative, only a ludicrous beardy trot would ever consider voting Labour. There's no doubt, particularly in the case of Facebook, that it's full of a lot of hysterical nonsense, whether it be for the left or for the right. Um, and that is a downside of it, I'm afraid. It's, it's obviously a, a very uh, important and relevant part of this general election because that's a, that's the news source for a lot of people getting up in the morning or going to bed at night. They, they're checking their Facebook. And the problem is, of course, it's normally just reinforcing the views they already have because they've just chosen to look at uh, the, the views and arguments of people and organisations they agree with. So you get this sort of slightly depressing scenario of preaching to the choir. You know, you've got a lot a lot of left-wing people shouting and screaming about the injustice of there being a Conservative government. How could this happen? And you've got the same on the to the right with people just describing sort of Jeremy Corbyn and some you know, deluded, mad Marxist. It's so... Obviously, we're on Facebook ourselves. Maybe people say that about us. But um, I do I do think that that is a downside. I don't know how you do get that balance. But I would say to anybody who's using social media all the time, for God's sake, just go a bit broader. Look into the, to other arguments. Don't just sort of if you're if you're supporting Jeremy Corbyn and you hate Theresa May, for goodness sake, just try and broaden things out a bit, because I think you just get a very, very blinkered view of why the party is either being successful or not successful because you're only hearing the same arguments that you want to hear all the time. 
Well, the Prime Minister did her level best to show that she isn't necessarily just interested in the needs and desires of the wealthy and the landed when she announced that she wants to bring back fox hunting, or at the very least, she wants to have a parliamentary vote on it. She appears to feel a lot more strongly about bringing back fox hunting than she did about people going to food banks. It's all a bit bizarre, though, when 52% of people wanted to leave the European Union. We were told that the views of the public were paramount and they must, under all circumstances, be respected. But when 80% of the same people say they don't want fox hunting back, which is something that's been said again and again in one poll after another, these public views can be safely ignored. Now, Robert, I know there are a lot of people on the conservative side of politics for whom this is a massive issue. and They want fox hunting back and it's apparently hugely important to them for reasons that nobody else will ever be able to understand. But why is this so important to Theresa May? Somebody who made such a big deal when she walked into Downing Street about sticking up for ordinary people. Why does she want to bring back fox hunting? It makes no sense. I think it demonstrates uh, the position of strength she's in presently. She expects to win the general election. She expects to win big. And I think what, what all this is really about is throwing a bone to her own grassroots Tory support, not general Tory voters. I'm talking about you know, the, the party activists, essentially, the, you know, the real party loyalists who feel very strongly about this. And that's, that's what I think it is. I think it, it's more of a reward for them. I don't think Theresa May is particularly bothered either way, to be honest. But I think it's the sort of thing she can do for the troops, she feels at this time, because she can get away with it. We must also spare a thought for Tim Farron, by the way, who's had quite the week again, at this time fending off reports that the party is encouraging tactical votes for Labour in constituencies where the Lib Dems have no chance of winning. Now, certainly, if there is an email floating around telling them not to do that, it wasn't sent to Vince Cable, who's been going around naming Labour MPs that he really, really likes. And then Tim decided the best way to win round all those floating voters was to talk about how he used to have a poster of Margaret Thatcher on his bedroom wall when he was a kid. I am starting to think that he maybe put money on himself to run the most ridiculous campaign ever. They are more comfortable in the territory of being opposition underdogs, not the main opposition, but an opposition beneath the main opposition. That's where they want to be. And um, as I say, I don't think it's been a great campaign for Tim Farron so far, I mean, I, I thought, to be honest, when we started, I thought, well, the only way is up after, you know, how bad it was for them a couple of years ago. But right now they, they seem to be struggling to make headway. And as the days go by, you do wonder, are they really going to make any gains at all? It could be a very frustrating night for them on June the 8th. Now, as I mentioned at the start, I'm currently uh, keeping an eye on this election campaign from Australia, specifically at the moment, Queensland, which describes itself on number plates as the Sunshine State. A little hard to believe as we drove down here in torrential rain a couple of days ago. The whole country is surprisingly obsessed with the Eurovision Song Contest. Now, what with it being on the other side of the world and all, the show actually begins at five o'clock in the morning over here, though thankfully it's repeated at a more reasonable hour for those of us who are still determined to watch it. Now, look, Britain's record at Eurovision has not been great 
of late. Now, by of late, obviously, I mean in the last 19 years. Quite apart from the diabolical songs that we keep sending out, like sort of sacrificial scraps of gibberish, you can't help thinking that this year we're going to have an even harder time after, well, kind of telling the whole of Europe to bugger off. Now, Theresa May admitted this week that she has sort of screwed us where Eurovision is concerned. Now, I have to be honest with you, Robert. You will know better than I. You're over there. I'm over here. I don't have the first idea of who is representing the UK this year. I have no idea what the song is. But what I do know is it is almost certainly going to finish somewhere near the bottom. This time around, you've got to imagine the agenda is going to be seriously against us. I know in the past we've sort of complained about there being some sort of Eastern European bloc conspiracy preventing uh, the British entry from getting any any sort of you know, respectable number of votes. Well, this time it's not just going to be an Eastern Bloc, chuck in an entire Western Bloc as well. So no, I, I don't think it's going to be pretty. I, I mean, I, I look forward to being proved wrong. Maybe we'll be celebrating a, a shock victory next week. But uh, highly unlikely, I think, can be the honest conclusion right now. Well, sadly, we've no time uh, this week to talk about events in Washington, D.C. It's a pity because it's the week that it's gone full on mental. President Numskull has clearly been given a child-friendly version of the Watergate story, complete with pictures, and decided to copy it by firing the head of the FBI, that being the guy who was investigating Trump's campaign for its alleged links to Russia. Now, that is in no way terrifying. It in no way should be seen as implying the final catastrophic collapse of the democratic norms which have kept the US system afloat for decades. Firing the guy whose investigations could end your presidency isn't sort of similar to Watergate. It's more absolutely the same. Still, I'm sure whoever that America's tiny-handed dictator appoints to take over will calmly, fairly and impartially investigate him before declaring there is no cause for alarm and everything is absolutely fine. And next week, we will hopefully have a few manifestos to pick over, always assuming, of course, that they haven't all been leaked. In the meantime, we'll have updates through the week on Twitter, at Paul Osborne. Thanks for listening. Do get in touch. And for now, goodbye. Yeah.